You know, someone in one of the groups this afternoon said, you know, it's a... He said, you know, you and Christopher say wonderful things, he said, but uh, five minutes after I heard them, during which time I got them, I forget them. So, I, and I, what I told him then is what I want to tell you now. That's fine. Uh, really, my sense of uh, Dharma talks and everything that we say, all the instructions, all the things that we do, are meant to incline the mind in the direction of insight. They're meant to uh, nudge the mind into the direction of what it itself will recognize. So um, you don't have to remember it. It's not like a fact or a piece of data that you'll need to know for some other time. Actually, I thought that was a lovely thing to think about it, that it just did something, but it's all gone. You don't have to memorize it or remember it. In fact, I think that um, there's a way in which when people give Dharma talks, they sometimes say the name of this talk is, and then they name it something, or rather the five this, or the four this, or the ten that. And I've done plenty of that myself. More, I find that as I get older and as I come along, that it just seems to me all the same talk, more or less. It's about how are we going to do this life inevitably challenging in a way that um, allows the heart to maintain its essential natural peace and goodwill. How are we going to do that? I'm actually, when I thought about telling you that tonight, I was going to say the name of all Dharma talks is what are we doing here and towards what end and how does it work? And I'm particularly happy to say that tonight in honor of my father. If my father had been alive today, it would have been his 93rd birthday. He was born on October 11th, 1911. And he always said, after he said that, he said, too bad I wasn't born November 11th, because then my birthday would have been 11, 11, 11. So I think it's so sweet that whatever we have, it's too bad that it wasn't yet a little bit better or a little bit different. The mind always looking to improve. But anyway, in honor of my father, I'm happy to tell you that when I was growing up, he was a school teacher, and he would say to me about pedagogy, he would say, when you teach somebody anything, Sylvia, be sure to tell them why, tell them towards what end. He said, because otherwise people won't want to learn to begin with, and they won't get how to approach the material. If you know where you're going, then you're interested in reading the map and you learn how to do it, And you practice following a map. You make sense out of it. So this is a little bit to remind. What are we doing here? And Christopher did it so well in his talk last night where he said in a number of times, this way and that way, we are really here to do the revolutionary act of unhabituating the uh, mind and heart from its reflexive responses to a more considered, a wiser response And that when we do that, the wiser response is always the response of benevolence and the response of love. And it it was, uh, I was uh, uh, interested again at the end of this afternoon's inquiry when uh, Christopher and Fred were talking together. And Christopher said, uh, at the end of it, he said, uh, the more love there is, the more connected we feel and the more anger there is the more disconnected we feel and the more distant uh, 
we are from each other. And I think what was um, inherent in that or implicit in that is when we are distant from each other, we begin to look at each other as really separate and different. We begin to see people in their otherness. I'm thinking so much about the difficulties in the world these days with um, the incredible number of ways in which the world gets divided up, divided up into the people who are like me and the people who are other, and the people who are on my side and think like me. It, it, it's, it's so clear to me that however much I think, well, uh, this ism is not my problem and that ism is not my problem and this ism is not my problem and that ism is not my problem, I think, but then there is always the problems of the people whose political views are different than mine, that I have a sense about, that I am not as open-minded about often as I'd like to be. There's, it's harder for me to remember these are people just like me with other views. I have a friend, my friend Tony, who practices here quite a lot, who was telling me recently about his own equanimity practice. His equanimity practice is he listens to vituperative talk radio. He listens to the kind of, uh, well, that's it, vituperative talk radio. He listens to the kinds of uh, radio hosts who inflame. And um, he named several when he first told me about that. I've, I've been in great awe of it. We've been talking about it quite a lot. He said, I time myself. He said, I get out of my work at a certain time. And it takes me a certain amount of time to reach the freeway. And I'm tr- so I know what time it is. And I'm trying to see how long I can go listening to the radio before I become totally inflamed and enraged. And I, so I'm getting better. I can get all the way to the freeway now. And I keep my heart calm. And I keep thinking to myself, he's actually great at this practice. He's been doing it for a while. And he said, not only do I say to myself, this is a person just like me, with another view. He said, that was like the beginning practice. This is a person just like me with another view. He said, now what I've added to that practice is I say, this is a person just like me with another view, and his view might be right. Now that, I think, is really advanced practice. I usually, when I think about, when I listen to those kinds of programs, I don't think that they're right. I think they're wrong, and then I can sometimes muster up a little compassion for these poor people who don't see things clearly and must be really upset. So sometimes with the compassion, I can keep it together in my heart a little bit, not become antagonistic in my heart, which really is my practice. I'm really trying to keep a heart that manages to be benevolent, have its benevolence express itself as goodwill or as friendliness or as compassion or as caring or as the impulse to teach or the impulse to console not because I, I, I want to get because it's such a great thing to be hypothetically it's because I feel better when I'm doing that I don't feel good at all when my heart is angry and adversarial it's really on behalf of myself in the most fundamental sense I feel good when I am living out of a naturally benevolent heart I feel most like myself. I feel most comfortable. I feel most safe in the world. 
But it's hard to keep that benevolent heart because things inflame. So Tony, with his practice, I I have some little experience. I tried it a little bit. You know, actually, I tried it recently. How many of you have heard Air America? You listen to Air America? Not so many. There's a new radio station. Do you know about it, Christopher? There's a new radio station on... It's actually 96 on the AM dial, at least in the Bay Area. Air America is now on all the time. It is vituperative talk radio expressing my point of view, not the other point of view. So, And, and it will stream over your audio. You can get it on your CDs, on your computer while you're working. You can hear it as well. So many of my friends were quite excited about Air America because now we're going to get back. We're going to say our our side. (laughs) So I tried listening last week, and I had a lot of freeway long travel to do last week. I tried listening to Air America. And they're amazingly bright people, and they have such really tremendous comprehension of history. It's not just plain people being uh, vulgar. Educated people being vulgar <laughs> and having my ideas, but you know I can't do it very long. I really get tense about it. It really makes me unhappy. I feel a little embarrassed about it. I don't feel comfortable about it. I don't like vitriol on anybody's side. It feels so painful that seriously, vulgarity harsh talk feels painful to me whoever side they're on the only time that I found myself listening the other day is when I was coming home from someplace and it was late and I was really sleepy so then I turned it on because it really wakes you up you have so many reactions to it but that's not the heart I want really what we're doing here And what I hoped I would make for you tonight is the connection between how doing what we're doing has some effect on cultivating a heart that's um, accustomed to the benevolent response. And I, I really want to make the point as well, so I hope I do. I'm telling myself so I'll remember it. That I think there are two ways in which the heart becomes habituated a benevolent response. One is through training it that way. I've had uh, Andrea duplicate the Metta Sutta for you, which is one of the it's a, one of the few pieces of paper that I carry with me to teach. I don't take lots of texts or things with me, but I carry the Metta Sutta with me. It's always somewhere on my in my travel things. That and two or three poems. It's very exciting to me that the Metta Sutta says, wish well to all beings, no matter what. For a long time I thought, and I used to, I used to, I even used to talk about it as if it were an amusing oversight on the part of the Buddha, that uh, it says, wish well no matter what to all beings on all realms in all directions. And I'd say it's too bad that he didn't leave an instruction manual for how to do that, just said do it, because it's extremely hard to do. 
but I actually uh, have been studying the sutta for a couple of years, and every time I think about it and study it and read it again, I get it on another level. And I think there's one particular line in it that is the giveaway line. It's the instruction. It's the uh, instruction for how to do it, since it's so easy to be pushed into the adversarial stance. And I think it's the line that comes just before the instruction, wish that, that just before the wish, may all beings be happy, comes a line that says, wishing, this is what should be done, the sutta begins, which I also love. In these days of such turmoil in the world, I think it's great that somebody comes along and says, this is what should be done. Would that it would be so easy. This is what should be done. And then it has a number of ideas for how one might live a life that's wise and thoughtful. And then it says, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be well, or may all beings be happy, depending on the translation. And I think the gladness and safety prerequisite is the, uh, is the clue for how we are able to, how one might be able to maintain a benevolent heart. When I'm not benevolent, it's because I've been frightened and startled and dismayed by something that's going on. And for me to have a way to both quiet my mind and heart by a practice and quiet my mind and heart by wisdom, both ways, allows me again and again and again, I think this is a lifelong day-to-day, moment-to-moment practice to recover that gladness and safety. Let's talk a little bit about the wisdom that comes from this kind of way of living. I really want to talk about this kind of way of living that we're doing because then it can translate over to a regular life with everything that we do on the outside. I really think so much about uh, not focusing the attention just on what we can clearly label as meditative practice, but as the general practice of maintaining a mind that's balanced and alert, engaged, interested, attentive. We do it here in this particularly quiet way with a very scaled-down schedule. But I really want, for myself and for you, I'd like to invite you to think of that as a practice. People say, sometimes I haven't got a lot of time to practice when I'm not on retreat. And I know what they're thinking about is I haven't got a lot of time to sit on my zafu. So I really want to say again and again and again, it's not about sitting on the zafu. It's not about being with the breath. It's about being able to pay attention, moment to moment, in a balanced, alert way. Christopher said it so nicely last night and again sometime this morning. He said it's to be able to see through the normal ways in which we interpret reality to what actually is there. 
one of the things I like a lot is, uh, um, you know, the word uh, vipassana is often translated in English into mindfulness sometimes, but also uh, clear seeing. And uh, I read a translation of an English language text in, in, into French, a, a book about this kind of practice, and it called uh, it translated clear seeing as vision profonde, and I love that. It sounds much better than clear seeing, doesn't it? And I think it, it really it sounds very much like what Christopher was really pointing to, that there's what you see, and there's what's really there. Like when you look at the ocean, you know, when you look at an ocean, even you're on a boat and you look right down, and the and the surface of the ocean is right there. It looks it's it looks opaque. And if you dive, if you scuba dive and you have glasses and equipment on and you fall off the boat and you go underneath, you see there's really an amazing whole world there which you couldn't have told from the surface. It's a whole huge, incredible world under the sea. So to be able to see the world beyond what we see on the surface Sometimes it's just to see the incredibleness, like when you fall off a boat under the water or when you look in a microscope and you see, that's how it was. You look in a microscope and you see how cells divide. Sometimes it's to see in a way that changes the heart quite profoundly. I've been thinking a lot um, and I often I often bring uh, with me wherever I'm teaching the front page of uh, newspapers um, to really literally look at, with vision profonde at what's the picture that's manifest on the front page and what's the picture if you really look. Um, one that I carried with me for several weeks was uh, oh, it's, it was a year ago at least maybe a little more. There was a uh, uh, a mine accident in uh, somewhere on the east coast, I think, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. Do you remember that mine accident? It's a mine accident, and uh, thirteen coal miners were trapped in a mine for a few days. Do you remember? And everybody stayed glued to the television for a few days. You know, I asked, I thought about that a lot. You know, they weren't people that we knew, but suddenly. They might have been people that we knew. They became people that we knew. Actually, because human beings have this incredible ability of empathy so that even though they're not the people that we know, we know how they feel and we know how the people who are connected to them feel. And through that marvelous ability of uh, empathy, they become our people. We become interested in them. So everybody stayed to see if they could make it. And after some two or three days of really harrowing uh, experiences, which we couldn't have known about until afterwards, I read the reports afterwards, so magazine articles written about it afterwards. At one point, they were up waist-deep in water, all of them. I remember being moved by the fact that uh, when, uh, when they were brought to the surface and interviewed, in one of the interviews someone told that story of um, 
how it was when the water started to seep in and said, uh, we tied ourselves together with a rope because we weren't sure that we would survive and uh, we thought that if we should uh, perish, that it would be easier for our families to find us if we had tied ourselves together. And I was so touched by the fact that even in, a, in, in the situation of, of contemplating one's end, one might be thinking about the well-being or the comfort of the people that are dear to you. I think actually that's what happens to human beings when they're really awake. Actually, one of the interesting things about being awake in that situation is I'm, I'm quite sure they weren't awake and relaxed. It's actually quite reassuring to know that awake is what's necessary. Awake and seeing clearly this is what's happening. Relaxed is extra. It's not necessary. The people on the doomed flights on, uh, on 9-11 who phoned on their cell phone all said, I love you. That when, when it's quite clear, when the mind is quite clear because you see what's happening, that what comes up is one's own goodwill and wish well and well-wishing for other people. Anyway, those coal miners, I remember reading it over and over and showing it to different groups of people that they had tied themselves together. Someone said um, a lunchbox floated by and uh, I picked it up and opened it and uh, there was a, a sandwich wrapped in, in uh, plastic wrap, Ziploc bag. There was a dry sandwich in it and we were hungry. He said, so I opened it and I took a bite and I passed it to my buddies. And I thought that's the other thing that we do when the mind is clear. We take a bite and we pass it to our buddies. And I think about this whole planet where half the people on it don't have enough to eat. And what would it be like if we took a bite and passed it to our buddies? Which is what we would do if we realized they are on the same planet with us. And people just like us in the same predicament of be having been born and needing to make it to the end. We're not in the same coal mine together, but we're on the same earth together. So I brought this photo and I showed it to groups of people. And the particular photo that I showed is a, 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 was a picture of one of the coal miners with his wife, reunited with her after he'd been rescued. And the picture is quite lovely. He's got his arm around his wife and he's a big guy and she's a smaller woman and they're looking at each other and they look so happy that he's been rescued. And they are happy that he's been rescued. I said, so what do you see looking at this picture? And people say, well, you know, I see these happy people. And I said, well, I would like for us to look at this picture and see these happy people and see past the happy people and see the question, what are they doing in a mine under the ground? What are they doing... Why do we have mines under the ground where people like this are jeopardizing their lives and their health in order to mine material that will befoul the atmosphere? How could we see past the outside and say, what's really happening in this picture? What do we really see? What's the hidden picture? There's a way in which I think if we really look at the hidden picture, we'll see a lot of dukkha not only manifest dukkha in the way the world is set up, like that picture is, 
but the dukkha in personal lives that not so visible on a social scale. You know, by the way, when I when I think about that, uh, I always think about that kind of awareness of clear seeing when people say, uh, "What what does a, a contemplative practice have to do with making a difference in the world?" Christopher said this afternoon, "This is not." an exercise in navel-gazing. It's not an exercise in navel-gazing because it can't be, it seems to me, that if we see clearly, to whatever degree we see clearly the amount of suffering in the world, I think we are impelled to make a difference. We are mandated internally by our understanding to make a difference. We couldn't possibly end up self-serving. If it ended up only self-serving, then we haven't seen. And we think we've seen. If we see, then we are mandated. I think that the, that, that the bodhisattva vow in any, well, even maybe that elevates it, a plain desire to make a difference in the world right now is the inevitable counterpart of seeing with any amount of clarity the amount of suffering in the world. was one of the things one of my teachers said to me early on in my practice life. And uh, it took me a lot of years to figure it out. I overheard a, a, a conversation, actually, between uh, uh, some of the teachers at a retreat. I was, I was the retreatant with the job of folding the lunch, folding the towels. Uh, and I did it after lunch. And the uh, dryer was in the teacher's dining room. So I stood in the corner and folded towels and uh, eavesdropped on conversations. <laughs> and uh, the teachers were talking about, why, why are you practicing? And each one would give a different idea of why they were practicing. And one of my teachers, a person I very much admired, said, I, I'm practicing to have a deeper view of suffering, a closer understanding of suffering. And truth to tell, in that moment, I thought to myself, oh dear, I was hoping to uh, not see so much suffering. I thought I was doing this practice so I would be free of suffering. And I have actually, over the years, come to very, very much appreciate that even more than ever, that particular teacher and teaching, because I think it is a profound vision of suffering that motivates the heart to make a difference And it's the heart motivated to make a difference on behalf of all beings, which is ultimately what connects us and rescues us from really the prison of my own self-absorption. I am most alive and most free when I am available and able to love, able to console, able to appreciate, able to connect, able to see through differences, and care impartially about people. I just got back from um, a weekend in Cincinnati, and I, I had uh, I went to a, a family bar mitzvah. So, for those of you who don't know the sociology of bar mitzvahs, these days when people don't live in the same town with the thirteen-year-old uh, celebrant of this coming-of-age ceremony. Uh, which is most of the relatives of any 13-year-old celebrant in this mobile society. People fly in from all over the country, and they arrive on Friday, 
and they congregate and they mill around and they do things with each other on Friday and then on Saturday morning there's a religious service in a synagogue and followed by some luncheon together and then they mill around all afternoon followed by an evening party and they mill around some more and they talk to each other and then often they meet again on Sunday morning and they eat some more. It's kind of like a potlatch, I think. It's the tribe gets together and spends some time together and dances and sings tribal songs and eats a lot and uh, all the while talking to each other. And there's all levels of talk that go on. And because I now rank as an elder in the tribe, you get uh, you get people uh, you get to you get to be involved in conversations with other people who need advice about their children or their marriage or their work or their plans. And so, in the meantime, while this whole party is going on, there are all these serious discussions happening. And also a serious exchange of confidence, whose relationship is falling apart, who's uh, in some way struggling terribly in their life, who's just gotten some really uh, ominous diagnosis of an illness. And in the meantime, the party is going on, and everybody's doing that. And at one point uh, in the middle of the Saturday night party where the Music was particularly loud and overbearing, and everybody was up and dancing. I looked around, and I looked at the numbers of people that I knew who internally had suffering states going on. This one's relationship, this one's health, this one's job, this one's plans, this one's struggles. And here's everybody celebrating this child and celebrating family, celebrating community. And I, I actually, my mind stopped, and I thought, I don't know how to feel. Should I feel, should I feel sad, and should I find this all such a dis- empty display? It looks like it's fun, and it looks like people are happy, but really, there's all this pain in it. So, should I feel what a sham this is? It's because it's all a story. I'm picking which story I'm going to go with, right? So, am I going? Am I going to go with the story? This is a sham. <laughs> So I I rewrite the story. I rewrite the story over there. I think I could rewrite the story as it's amazing. Human beings are amazing, aren't they? They can have all of this turmoil and all of this angst, and their personal drama can be, in fact, so painful. It's a serious pain. If if your relationship is falling apart, your health is falling apart, your job, your world, it's a serious pain. Not to not to minimize it. It's an amazing thing, though, that we can somehow in full awareness of our serious difficulty in our one corner of the cosmic pain, to be able to say, and I am connected to community, and we're having a celebration of this child and of community. It's heroic that we can do that. So should I go with the dismal story of what a sham this all is, or should I go with the story of how heroic human beings are? And I actually liked the heroic story much better. It was better for my nerves. It was better for the mood. It kept me in a much better shape. I mean, otherwise, I'd, you know, I'd be unhappy with the other one. And there are a couple of reasons that I tell you that story. One, it was another thing that came to mind today when I was thinking about seeing in a profound way. You could see on the surface, here's a party in a more profound way. Here's a party 
with people with all these different kinds of dramas going on. But then I could see as well there are stories that happen because of that vision. And can I recognize them as stories? They're just stories, you know. It's not that this is the right one or this is the wrong one. This is story A and story B. Somebody asked the question in the first inquiry this afternoon about uh, the being able to notice that there is an eye that keeps making its keeps making its appearance. That eye, by the way, makes its appearance with with every thought. You know, I thought that I had that opinion. Um, uh, I had that feeling. Uh, I need this. I don't like this. All I, I actually always think of them as kind of uh, uh, parallax, like a, in a in a in a uh, in a uh, um, if there's an object in the uh, in a light beam, there's a, uh, a shadow of it on the back wall, and I keep thinking we have a shadow of an eye. Be behind every one of these uh, arisings in consciousness, and we keep imagining that there's someone who's that I. The idea of thoughts without a thinker, which is a great name for a book, and it's Mark Epstein's name for a book. It's a lovely way to think about. Uh, the fact that thoughts think themselves, kind of a thought machine that comes with this whole apparatus, thinks thoughts. We imagine there's a thinker. We imagine there's an owner of this experience. There is this body, of course, but experience arising and passing away. We imagine it often as a narrative that's happening to someone who owns it. In those moments that I see that my experience is arising and, my, and that experience is arising, and can leave out the my, experience is arising, opinions about the experience are arising, stories about the opinions of the experience are arising, and uh, that that's all that there is. No one who owns a story or needs to be wedded to it that there's a possibility of, first of all, recognizing that it's a story. I don't have to actually have a story. I can just be at the bar mitzvah. I can just dance. I don't have to tell so many stories about it one way or another. It's actually quite liberating not to have to own anything. There was one more word that I took out of Christopher's talk last night that stayed in my mind. I remembered about him talking about the conversion of the heart from its adversarial response to a loving response. And I remembered that I wanted to tell you about vision profonde. And he said when we see in that way that's uh, really profound, we are touched. And I, I actually like the word touched a lot. Um, more than poignant, which is something like it, but touched. 
that we actually are empathic animals. We feel in ourselves. We have the capacity to feel what other people might be feeling. We can't know, of course, what other people's experience is. We're guessing when when we respond to someone else's experience. But we can be touched. My own sense is that, my own experience is that when my mind is awake and relatively composed, relatively balanced, attentive, the natural response of my heart is to be touched by most things. The Brahma Vihara practice that the Buddha taught is really based on the notion that when equanimity is present in the mind, the heart is touchable. It responds in one of three ways. If the, if the experience that we meet is uh, not too startling one way or another, it's a regular experience. We respond with goodwill, with kindness. You know what I think of always as an example for that? Do you ever get up in an airplane, especially at night, get up in an airplane and uh, walk to the back to go to the toilet especially at night in an airplane, more than in the day, you know. Sometimes it works in the day, but the night more. If you go walk along the length of the airplane to the back, it kind of looks like a... Well, you know what it looks like? It kind of looks like a disaster zone, and everybody <laughs> flung out in all these uncomfortable ways, and they're wrapped in blankets. Nobody looks comfortable in the airplane. And they're all hunched over and <coughs> sprawled out, and... They don't feel any better than you do. And you walk to the back. But I feel very kindly about them, don't you? And you see all these people of various degrees of Dezabi, you know, they're all undone. But don't you feel kindly about them? I do. That's what they, and, you know, I'm not frightened in airplanes, so it's not that I'm worried that we won't get to where we're going. But all of a sudden, they're my traveling companions. And I wish that they were comfortable. And I feel good about them. A friend of mine who just uh, retired from 42 years of being a flight attendant, uh, who's a practitioner and frequently in class, I was giving a talk, probably something like this, and I said, uh, you know, there aren't so many neutral experiences and there aren't so many neutral people in life. You know, mostly we make opinions of people all the time. We just look at them and we make opinion one way or the other. And she right away said, no, no, Sylvia, you're wrong. She said, uh, the, I reminded myself now because of the flight of the airplane image. She said, when people, when I look at a, an airplane full of people and I say to them, to 350 people, fasten your seatbelt, I mean for all of them to do it. I want all of them equally well to fasten their seatbelt. I am equally wanting for all of them to get to their destination in a good shape. And I think to myself, in a certain sense, we are all hurtling through space on this rock. (laughs) Undoubtedly, we're going to have bumps on it. It's going to have turbulence. 
I would like for people to fasten their seatbelt as well. <laughs> so it's a neutral situation, okay? Maybe life is not so neutral depending on what your attitude is about it, but let's assume. The mind, we have three kinds of moments. You notice that when you're sitting here in the day, you know. Actually, in the, in the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha taught attentiveness, mindfulness of uh, Vedna, of uh, feeling tone. And there are three types of feeling tones. They're neutral. There are moments of experience that are neutral. There are moments that are pleasant, and there are moments of unpleasant. I invite you to think about that or notice that during the day. It's an interesting way to practice because it's very interesting not to count up did I have more pleasant than unpleasant or more unpleasant than pleasant and, and see what won, but but to really notice the behavior, the, the, the movement of the mind in response to pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. When an experience is pleasant, the mind really begins to think, oh, this is good, I wish more of this would happen. It doesn't actually rest. Okay, good, lovely. It starts thinking, ha-ha, now I finally feel good. I wonder what I did. Maybe I was leaning a little bit to the left. I think I'll sit leaning. You know, we, do, we start to strategize around it, and the strategy is suffering in the mind. There's no point. Or it's unpleasant, and the mind starts thinking, uh-oh, unpleasant. What can I do to get rid of this? It's just unpleasant. It won't be there forever. But the mind moves away, cringes from unpleasant. And the moving towards and the cringing away, the clutching after or the pushing away, is suffering. And without it, it's just what it is. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. When, when experience is neutral, uh, we often experience it as boring and space it out. And really, I think when, when I think about it in terms of the Brahma Viharas, when experience is neutral, if I'm attentive, my mind and my heart's in a good mood. It wishes well. It enjoys things. It enjoys the day. I noticed uh, at one point today, Christopher said, it's a beautiful day. Enjoy I think in one of the inquiries, uh, he said, it's a beautiful day. Could enjoy it. If, if when my heart is available to me, when it's not all caught up in something, it's possible that I'll enjoy the day, even if it's not beautiful. When it's raining, it's beautiful. It's beautiful here when it rains, when it's anything. It's interesting. When something is unpleasant, the mind meets unpleasant experiences, and it remains balanced, and it doesn't cringe away from them. What happens is that the natural uh, impulse of the heart to console makes itself apparent. We are compassionate beings. We feel badly. We feel the pain of other people who feel, who feel pain. For a while, I carried around the front page of a newspaper just because uh, it, it was, uh, the front page had a story of um, a, a, actually a, a landslide in a town in Siberia somewhere in the last year. And... Uh, it had a picture the day after of five um, old women, 
members of that town, people in that town, sitting on a park bench. Didn't have a picture of the landslide, I had a picture of the five women. And I brought it and showed it to people covering up the headline because everybody could tell without my telling them the story or reading the headline from the body posture of these women that they were pained. That we read body posture and we read faces. We don't need to know the whole story. And we immediately feel, oh, something bad has happened to these people. We pick that up. And we respond with our own natural good heart. When experience is uh, pleasant, when we meet the experience that's pleasant, fortunate experience, the mind that isn't balanced, sometimes it meets a unfortunate uh, fortunate experience. And it's a little bit not so balanced itself. It begins to wish it had that fortunate experience. You see someone else having some really good fortune in an area that you'd like to have some good fortune. Somebody tells you, I just met the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. I'm totally in love. Actually, suppose it's your best friend. That makes it complicated. Your best friend meets you and says, I just met this person. I fell in love with them completely. They fell in love with me back. This is it. It's clear we're going to spend the rest of our lives together. You really want that for your friend. And you really want it for yourself also. So it's a very tricky thing. You know, mudita, the, the ability to absolutely, with an unrestrained heart, rejoice in the good fortune of other people, is complicated by by our own unmet needs, our own pains, our own desires. The heart that meets good fortune, that is itself resting in wisdom, can look and say, you know, ah, I do really wish I had that as well, but I am so glad for you. I really wish I had it. It hurts me that I don't have it, and it delights me that you do have it. There's a way without denying one's own truth to rejoice in other people's truth. And actually then to really save oneself from the, from the guilt and the remorse of not being wholehearted about one's friend. We feel much better when we are wholehearted, when we can console with a whole heart, when we can appreciate with a whole heart, when we can wish goodwill with a whole heart. It means we're not caught up in ourselves. We're connected. I think it's coming on the end of our time. I'll tell you a connection story which comes to mind at this point. I had a phone call on a Friday afternoon. It must be three weeks ago now, maybe four. You'll, you'll figure it out. I had a phone call from my friend Tamara who lives in uh, Florida. Tamara's a mindfulness teacher, a good friend of mine for many years. Called me late on a Friday afternoon, unexpectedly. Pick up the phone. She said, it's Tamara. And I'm just calling to tell you that you don't need to worry about me. So 
A month before that, Tamara had had some very serious symptoms in her belly, and she'd been to the doctors, and they had suspected ovarian cancer, and they had, because she had very typical symptoms, they had done a hysterectomy soon after that, days later. They had done a complete hysterectomy, and all of us got phone calls, and everyone on, a, on an email net got, a, got an email that said, Praise be, everything is out, and there's no malignancy. There's no tumor. They did pathology reports, a test during the surgery, after the surgery, there's no tumor. It was all inflamed, who knows why, they'll do more tests, but there's no tumor. Great. Everybody's very happy. A week later, get another phone call. Everybody gets another email that says, on further examination by the experts at Sloan Kettering, there actually is beginning level, early stages of ovarian cancer need um, chemotherapy. And Tamara had already had her first, she'd been to New York, she'd met the people at Sloan Kettering, and she'd had her first chemotherapy. Then I get the phone call on a Friday afternoon. Says, this is Tamara, you don't have to worry about me. And I thought, ah, they looked at the slides again, and they discovered she doesn't have it. She said, even though Hurricane Francis is coming right for Florida and right for Palm Beach, my friends are coming to get me, because I live really in, in an area where I'm less protected and I have more windows. They live in a more protected area, less windows. My friends are coming to get me to take me to their house, so I will be safe. I just wanted you to know, if you called me, that I wouldn't be here all, we- all weekend, so don't worry about me. I'm safe, and I'll call you after the storm. So in, in that nanosecond between, I thought, and she told me, I'll be I realized she still has the cancer. Now she's with the friends. She called me on Monday. And all weekend I had followed the uh, hurricane on the television. I watched the weather channel. I actually never watch television. I, I, have a, I have a practice of never watching television. We own a television. I don't watch. But I watched the weather channel all weekend. <laughs> and I felt personally connected suddenly to the people. So first of all, I have a friend in, in Florida and it consoled me to watch what, the, what was going on in Florida, to watch where the storm was going. And I actually got to know the weather forecasters quite well because you know, they keep, the, the same cast of characters kept coming on and I appreciated them so much. First of all, they're standing out in the rain and the storm and the blowing. Have you seen that? You know, they got one hand clutching a windbreaker and the other hand they're holding a, a microphone and storming on them. And I'm watching some young woman uh, newscaster doing the news, and it's blowing. And at some point, she ducks out of the picture, and there's flying roof tiles that come through. <laughs> and she has to duck out to stay out from the flying roof tiles. And then she gets back in the picture, scrambles back up, finishes the report. And I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if her mother is watching her on television. <laughs> Finally, they downgraded to a storm, tropical storm. I feel much better. Tomorrow calls on Monday, tells me the report of the whole storm, that she went to her friends, 
And she said uh, that the eye wall of the storm, she said, I know everything about storms now. She said the eye wall of the hurricane passed through in the middle of the night. And she said, you have no idea how noisy it is. It's it's like nothing you've ever heard. And uh, I said, did you stay in your bed? She said, no, no, no. We were all up. We huddled together in the living room. We're all sitting on the sofa together in our pajamas and robes. I said, what did you do? She said, well, uh, the windows were clattering and there's all this noise. She said, mostly we sat quietly. She said, when it got really bad, we prayed. We wished well for ourselves and for the people around us and for the people in Florida. They did metta practice. They wished well for everyone around them. And she said, made us feel better, consoled us. And then I thought about it. I told her about it. I said, you know, tomorrow when you called me and you said, don't worry about me, I, I, I just want you to know that I'm safe. I said, for a nanosecond, I thought you didn't have ovarian cancer. She said, no, no, I have it. She said, but, you know, over the weekend, I didn't think about it at all. She said, because it wasn't what was happening. I said, this other thing was happening. Who knows what it'll be with that, but in the meantime... She said it's a tr- it was a tremendous lesson. She said, you know, she's a mindfulness teacher. She said, I'll have so many Dharma talks out of this. She said, because you, could, you can talk about you never know, uh, things keep changing. The main thing I think that I want to talk about, about it, because I've been thinking about it a lot since then, is how is the ability of human beings to feel safe in the middle of peril, through connection, that, uh, and the ability to reach out, either in actuality, or in thought, or in prayer, or in caring, in order to feel connected, which then gives rise to the feeling of safety. I thought about all of the connecting that happened. First of all, Tamara called me. She could have just scooted off you know, with her friends, but she had the presence to know Sylvia in California will be thinking about me, so I'll call and then I'll go. So she reached out to me with caring. She, the friends reached out to her with caring. They phoned her and said, your house is more isolated than ours. We'll come and get you. They sat together in their living room to, take, to be with each other in the height of the storm. They reached out with caring to the people around them that they don't didn't know. I mean, maybe they knew their next-door neighbors, but they didn't know all of northern Florida. But reaching out to northern Florida with well-wishing to feel connected. And I was so uh, moved by her saying, when we did that, we felt soothed in the height of the storm. Thought about the things that soothe the mind, the heart, make it feel safe. Wishing in gladness and safety, may all beings be happy. And that vision of them huddled together, wishing well for everyone else sharing the storm. I've been thinking about that vision and thinking about all of us, in a sense, huddled together here. I can imagine the whole world as a world that at this moment 
is full of a storm. There's a storm ravaging this whole planet. It's not localized like a hurricane, but it's all over the whole planet. It's a storm of all the turbulation, all the tribulation that's caused by greed and hatred and delusion all over this planet. Famine and poverty and wars and all the ways in which it could be different and isn't yet. The storm of ignorance that's causing all this suffering all around the whole planet and us sitting in the middle of it. And I think about each time that we sit down here with the intention to create peace in ourselves. Not actually to create it, to connect with that place that's already peaceful. That it is as much as a prayer, as a prayer for the peace of the whole rest of the room and peace for the whole rest of the world. I found I was looking through uh, uh, the few papers that I brought to uh, find the Metta Sutta that I wanted to give to you. Please do take a copy before you leave tonight if you want to. And keep it with you. We'll just talk about it from time to time as the week goes on. I found a poem by Mary Oliver called Wage Peace. I want to think that that's what we're doing here. We're waging peace. I've said a lot of things. I think probably the most important thing I said is that it's my experience that there is no more comfortable place, no more safe haven than one's own benevolent heart. And it isn't anything that you have to get because you already have it. And at least one way of saying what the point of all of this is, what we're doing here together, is that uh, for myself, I am habituating myself, I am trying to habituate myself to connect with that place in which I am most safe and most free of suffering. So there are a lot of more things to say, but it's also 8.30. So I'll say good night. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Insight Meditation Society on October 11, 2004. It is an offering of the dark.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.